This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Chase Down Podcast presents A City of Champions, a seven-part series chronicling the Cavs' 2016 NBA championship. With help from fans who cheered against us, reporters who covered it, and the players who watched it, we'll take you game by game through the most improbable 3-1 comeback in championship history. Be sure to subscribe to the Chase Down Podcast to relive the greatest series we've seen in our lifetimes. One dribble steps back, puts up a three, won't go, rebound tip taken by Spades, final seconds, it's over, it's over! Cleveland is a city of champions once again! The Cavaliers are NBA champions! The series begins Thursday, April 9th. A friggin' low, Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Pavali coming at you once again without my co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. Have a little bit of a change of pace pod coming up for you. Uh, we're going to take a break from our decade player ranking series for every NBA team and get into just some single team deep dives, just two teams on this podcast that I think were uh, we probably haven't talked about enough, at least on our podcast throughout the year. They, they might have flown under the radar nationally in general. So I have two esteemed guests coming on. First, we will speak with Caitlin Cooper. She writes for Indie Cornrows, and she is just fantastic. One of my favorite writers um, in the basketball sphere. You can follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. So again, we'll be beginning with Caitlin Cooper to speak about some Indiana Pacers. After that, we will speak at length with... Tara Bowen Biggs. She is a co-host of the Blazers Edge podcast. In addition to the Women's Hoops and Talks podcast, what is the abbreviation, which is, as I've mentioned before, a fantastic abbreviation. This is the start of our Seven Questions Never Less series. Yes, I know it should be fewer. I don't care. There will be more than seven questions. There's a bunch of follow-ups, but the idea is to talk about you know seven main talking points about these teams, looking more so big picture than immediate picture. We will discuss what happened this season, talk about what they're going to do over the offseason, some needs they might have in free agency, any key developments for their players, um, any key players they have entering free agency. We cover all the bases, and so I hope you appreciate these these single-team deep dives as, as much as I do. I think it really just helps us obviously stay distracted during these crazy times, but just give everyone a better feel for from people who matter, who know the team, about what's going on with those specific organizations. Uh, before we get started with, with Caitlin Cooper, I just want to remind everyone, please continue rating, reviewing, subscribing to us on iTunes. If this is the first time you're checking us out, we appreciate it. Um, that's the best way that you can help out the pod and to let us know that you're listening. But we can be found wherever else you are consuming your podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all those good things. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. And you can also follow our YouTube channel where all of these podcasts are being posted. We appreciate subscriptions and likes there on our videos as well. Go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox. 
Knox. Last but certainly not least, we have the shout out to this week's sponsor, betonline.ag. We thank them so much for making this podcast possible as always, and you will be hearing from them shortly. All right, let's get into some Indiana Pacers basketball with Indy Cornrose's Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing? I know that's a loaded questions during these times, but but how are you doing relative to everything? I think we need to coin a new word about how all of us are feeling. Cause I don't think I'm feeling any one thing at one time. Like I'm simultaneously like sad and scared. Sometimes I'm counting blessings. Sometimes I want to be like jumping into action and helping in some way. And other times I just want to lay in my bed. So whatever that word is, that's what I am. I, I think you just perfectly described the scope of emotions that I felt over the past month. Plus don't think I could have put it any better. Yeah, somebody needs this word. It's not going to be me, but we need a word for it. Yeah, we need to come up with a word. So if anyone out there who's more creative than than myself or or Caitlin in, in this area, uh, please try to come up <laughs> with one. I did bring you on to talk Pacers, but I wanted to ask you quickly about, I saw on Twitter, uh, I don't know if it was a week ago or something at this point, but you tweeted about Psych, which is yes. one one of my two favorite shows of all time. And so I just have to ask, are you are you a psycho? Yes, I love Psych. I loved it in Original Run. My sister and I would watch that when it was new on USA, and now they've been running marathons back of it like once a week, I think they're going to do during this time until the new movie comes out. So I was watching that yesterday in the background while I was working on stuff. So yes, big fan. Yes, uh, my friends and I, because it came out when we were in high school, I think is when it started, we would have fried chicken and Psych nights when it was on 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 Friday. And it's still, the show holds up too. I've rewatched it semi-recently and it holds up really well. And I assume you probably had like pineapple as a side dish because that's a very psych thing to have. <laughs> we had pineapple to like lean into the joke, but I hate pineapple. What? Yeah. This is the hottest take. You hate pineapple? It's like before it's like served and stuff like uh, pineapples, I think are cool, but there's, you know, when you cut them up and you try it, they're just not good. I'm not a pineapple fan. And people who put them on pe- pizza are crazy. No, I, I, I put them on everything. Pizza. I mean, they can be savory. You can have them on like teriyaki stuff with steak. You can have them in dessert. They make tremendous cake. Pineapple cake is like the best cake. We never, I just don't think you've tried pineapple in enough forms. I guess I could try and expand my pineapple horizons, but I don't know if I'm going to. I've never liked it. Perhaps I need to give it a, another shot, though, in the name of apparently Psych and Caitlin Cooper as well. Right. When, Hope- when the Psych when the Psych movie comes out, whenever that is on the Peacock, you you get the dish of pineapple. I'll have to try it. Uh, and James Roday, huge Spurs fan, too. Something that I had, I had actually only found out within the last year or two. So James Roday, that's your in- invitation to come on Hardwood Knox. <laughs> um, I am here to ask you actual basketball questions, and I wanted to start with the Pacers. I've, I'm most fascinated by, and I know we don't know whether the season's going to resume, so it feels loaded as well asking big picture questions. But one of the things that I think is most important to them is the the progress that Victor Oladipo has made since he's come back, and he's only his availability's been a little bit choppy since coming back from the quad injury, and I think he was dealing with some right knee soreness since he's come back, but what have, what has been your impressions of him just during the the 13 games that you've watched of post recovery, Victor Oladipo? You know, it's interesting. I get asked a lot, you know, people be, well, do you think his shots broken? Do you think this or that? And honestly, like, I just don't think I'm going to be really concerned about much of what's going on unless like this carries over into next season, because like, you'll notice little things where 
he doesn't he's not as trampoline like on his jump shot he doesn't quite have the same lift or he might land really kind of softly or gingerly on one leg off a jump shot or when when he's getting into the paint he really kind of exclusively wants to jump and plant off of his left foot and that can kind of lead to uh off balance layups or maybe a teardrop instead of an on target one so he wasn't really getting to the line a lot early on that's kind of turned around a little bit the last few games and his three looked more in rhythm against Boston and even a little bit before that and some of that can be attributed because I've I've noticed that guys are ducking under picks a little bit but some of this I just feel like we kind of need a little bit more time to see as he continues I mean he's even said I saw on Instagram live where he said he's still referring to this as his rehab phase, like these games are still rehab to him. So um, some of the chemistry with him and Brogdon, I think needs time to develop as well, because they, they at times don't always look like they're on the same page as far as divvying up ball handling and, and how they're going to divvy up screens from Sabonis or Turner or or completely what's going on there. They need a little bit more continuity and how they're going to use both of them, which really hasn't had time to develop because Victor's been out in and out of the lineup. Brogdon's had injuries. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't, he doesn't look like himself, I would say, but until he doesn't look like himself headed into next season, I'm not going to start pressing the panic button. And, it, and sort of, as you pointed out, I can't help that like the availability is in and out. And I don't know if, you know, keeping him out two games here, two games there, one game there, uh, was that more precautionary or is that like just something to monitor when you're talking about his right knee soreness? Right. So yeah, some of it was they were holding him out of uh, back-to-backs and then he had he had swelling, which I had seen that doctors said that he could kind of expect with this type of an injury. Like they weren't necessarily caught off guard by it, but they also didn't want him playing on it. Like they wanted that to go down. So I mean, I don't think it was necessarily something that wasn't expected, even though anytime something happens with a knee, you're kind of like, you know, ooh, ooh that's something to right. watch. <laughs> It does seem like he's just from the, the, I've only seen like three and a half games that he's played. And one of them was, uh, I think it was a loss to Toronto. And he seemed to be moving really, really well on, on the defensive end. And then you wrote a piece recently about the charges that he's drawn for the Pacers, how he's doing them, how many he's actually, actually gotten. Has, has he been like pretty impactful on the defensive end since returning where a lot of people seem to be harping on, you know, some of the offensive struggles. Uh, but maybe they should just be more encouraged that he's actually been really active on the defensive end in such a short time. Right. It's interesting. Like I I know that his burst gets pointed out quite a bit, but he has burst when he's playing as the low man on defense. He he'll come all the way over to tag on a side pick and roll, empty corner pick and roll. He'll come all the way into the lane as an extra defender and tag on that. And he'll still be able to get clear to the top of the three point line to contest on like an X out closeout. And it, it doesn't look like, like he's having trouble moving at all. He looks like the same, you know, hummingbird type floating, buzzing from one spot to the next as he used to be able to. So yeah, he's definitely having an impact as far as how he closes gaps. Sometimes you'll see him get lost a little bit on a screen when he gets bumped or, or, you know, his strength isn't necessarily as a trailer to begin with. He's better as a person that roams off the ball. And that's Mm -hmm. something they have to figure out with Brogdon. But I, I think he's looked as sharp as you as should be expected for somebody that's had the type of enter uh, the type of injury that he had defensively his uh next contract is going to be be fascinating i yes it's something that you always have to monitor when they're going into the final year uh, of his deal but i just next season i feel like just says 
it's not it's like almost not about how much does he factor into the Pacers' long-term future? It still feels like, you know, even though Sabonis has emerged, even though they have Brogdon, they have Turner right now, it still feels like their trajectory is so tightly tethered to to who Victor Oladipo is moving forward. Right, because, I mean, of all those people, he's the one that's going to have the most impact on simultaneously on both ends of the floor with the highest ceiling. So, you know, I know there, I had seen some reports that there was talks of like extending him and I could kind of understand that, especially early in the season, if he was feeling even, you know, somewhat insecure about, you know, I want to lock up security now because I'm not sure how this injury is going to be or how I'm going to come back, but that, that they didn't reach one. I would expect that he's going to be hitting free agency because I mean he can only take if I understand this correctly he can only take a 20% raise on what his 21 million dollar salary is versus being able to potentially sign a 30% max with the Pacers if the Pacers see him as that player which you know then what does that do if the cap lowers with you know tax implications when they already have Turner and Sabonis and Brogdon on the book so I think that all that entire contract situation is definitely going to be interesting to watch with only one year left and especially if they don't have uh, playoffs to gauge right. how some of this is with both of their bigs in the lineup and and whatnot. Attention, Hardwood Knox listeners! With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. BetOnline has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can also bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the nation's hot dog eating contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Malcolm Brogdon, too, uh, he's dealing with a hip injury. Uh, well, he was dealing with a hip injury by the time the league suspended play. As you said, we don't really have a, a huge sample of him and Oladipo playing together. And, you know, their projected starting five is, hasn't really spent that much time on the court. Uh, but what has been your impression of the Malcolm Brogdon experience so far? Because I do think the, the knee flex, uh, knee jerk reaction was when they acquired him from Milwaukee that that was an overpay. Um, in that contract. And you could probably still argue that it's above market value. But when you kind of look at what he's done offensively, uh, at looking at his playmaking, looking at, you know, he has hit some nifty off the dribble twos. Is this someone that you trust uh, now uh, to be more of an offensive floor general than he ever had to be in Milwaukee? You know, it's kind of funny because when you sent me these questions ahead of time, I think you had in there like pre something like a pre-injury Malcolm Brogdon. And in my head, I was like, well, you know, which injury? Because pre, he's had a dislocated finger. He's had back spasms twice. He's had a hamstring injury. And now he's had this quad muscle injury. So before the initial finger, I mean, he was racking up drives left and right. I mean, and, and some of that was could be expected because even when he was with Milwaukee, I remember I wrote this over the summer that he was averaging... 10.1 drives with Milwaukee, uh, which led the league of anyone with less than three and a half minutes of possession because he was that spot up player. So you could kind of see that if he had this, you know, more opportunity to handle and more time with the ball and more opportunity to run pick and roll that you could kind of expect what he was doing early in the season. But at the same time, I, I now have questions of whether he can do that over a full season because mm-hmm. his January and February were very, uh, 
very weird. And I don't know if that was some lingering injuries, but in February, his time of possession was pretty absurd. Like the only two players that had a higher time of possession than him was Trey Young and James Harden. And obviously Trey Young is playing on a very bad team and is, you know, magical at, at creating passes and stuff out of double drags. And James Harden is the ISO king. So I don't really think Malcolm Brogdon probably needs to have the ball that long. And some of that, some of that was a product of chemistry issues, you know, plays can stall out and then he's kind of dribbling in place, waiting for stuff to go. But his, his drives dropped quite a bit. His free throw attempts bottomed out and his free throw percentage dropped by a pretty big margin as well. And he didn't, you'd notice that he didn't really look like he was moving super well on either end of the floor, especially, I mean, he's not a great point of attack defender to begin with, but even when he was off the ball and had to help to the nail, he just looked kind of stiff and brittle. So I don't know how much of like maybe this injury that he has, I don't know if that was something that was bothering him before it, it, he finally had it or what was going on, but obviously his, his three point shot hasn't necessarily carried over from Milwaukee either. So, I mean, he's down in the low thirties overall and he's taking tougher threes, more pull up threes and, and more contested threes as a product of, you know, he's not a spot up guy next to Giannis anymore. And Oladipo isn't there to, to generate some of that type of gravity. And then having to negotiate between the two of them, like, you know, is Oladipo going to be handling the ball more so that Brogdon can kind of slide back into that role? I think of the two of them, that Brogdon has a greater scope of what he can do as a playmaker off the pass. Victor likes to jam, you know, a lot of pocket passes and he's good at it. He's added some flair to it where he gets some backspin on the ball. Now you'll see that a lot this year. But I mean, Brogdon can hit a greater variety of spots. So um, how the two of them handle that. And, and then if Oladipo doesn't have great precision hitting corners or stuff to Malcolm and, you know, air gets under the ball, then is Malcolm taking still more contested threes? And not that he's taking a ton. It's just more than what he would have done with Milwaukee. You bring up the twos, though, and I think that's important. I mean, even though he's not a great pull-up three-point shooter, the fact that he can shoot off the dribble and has been doing that this year, I think that's important for their relationship because the Pacers – typically have their guards have a pretty high time of possession. So mm-hmm. if he's going to be ha- handling the ball, then then Victor's not going to be getting extra attention at the nail if, if Malcolm continues to prove that, hey, I'm actually willing to take these shots because he didn't take a lot of shots creating off the dribble last year, somewhat yeah. because of what his role was, but he also just didn't do it. And I was also kind of wondering if the drives were a function of that, where just like he had wide open paths in Milwaukee. And as you already said, like the, the level of difficulty on his shots has gone up. So maybe they're just not there, but he's also, you know, you mentioned the injuries he's had this year, aside from the, the hip thing uh, that he's most recently had. He's, he was banged up a lot in Milwaukee yes. too. Like missing a ton of games is, is nothing new for him. Is there like, I know you haven't seen it a ton of necessarily enough of them together yet, but does your gut tell you, you know, does it need to be like, this might be a, a constant functional tug of war where they're trying to strike a balance between him and Oladipo, but do you lean one way or the other of who should probably be controlling more of the offense? Just, just looking at the ball handling. Is it Brogdon because he just has more range as a playmaker or is it Victor Oladipo because you can probably count on him to negotiate tougher half court defenses better than Brogdon. Right. I mean, I think the one thing that I can look at is that even before Victor got hurt, Darren Collison had the higher time of possession. Like there's room for Malcolm to still handle and play with Victor because Darren did it and Darren isn't as good as Malcolm. But I think more so than anything, they just need to have, like I said, like more continuity between some of the actions that they're running. Like maybe it's Malcolm and Sabonis running two man game on one side of the floor, but you're ready to throw the ball behind 
behind that action, they call that stampede and over to Victor running with a step up screen with miles on the other side of the floor, or they're engaging both of them more at the same time in pistol action or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, bringing sub bringing Brogdon off a dribble handoff with Victor waiting to use his speed on the weak side, like whatever it's going to be, they just need to have both of them involved more at the same time, I think. I mean, I think there's there's room for both of them to have the ball because there was a year ago. This, uh, I, I agree with you there. Uh, I This is the question I, I actually want to most ask you, and I'm sure people probably want to hear some of the questions that follow more than this, but can you explain to me what it is about the Pacers' defense where they can basically get any wing and all of a sudden he turns into at least a decent defender, if not better? Uh, of what I've seen from time to time from TJ Warren, he appears to be competing his ass off on that side of the floor. You have Justin Holiday has played some power forward this year. I just, what is it about the Pacers that enables so so many wings, or at least you know, even when Boyan Bogdanovich was there, uh, he just had his moments where he was never known as anything other than I would say probably a bad to even worse than bad defender before coming to Indiana. No, I don't think anyone looked at him just because he had that you know, back and forth with LeBron James once as this lockdown guy, but it seems like the Pacers can just bring in any type of wing and they're going to become close to the best version of themselves defensively. Yeah, right. So it was, it's interesting because in, in summer league when they were over in India and then the very first possession of the very first regular season game, he literally set like what I would call a friendly fire screen on defense. Like it was so bad. He was like bumbling into his own teammates. And I was just like, Oh man, this is, this is going to be a project. Like this might take a while. And within like a week and a half, like all of a sudden he's going from like dying on the vine on a screen to he's fighting over, he's squaring people up. Like my favorite play of this season is probably him busting through a screen and blocking Tobias Harris's shot to win against Philly in the very last one of the last possessions like with 30 seconds to play like that's one of my most memorable plays of him this year just because it showed that he could have an impact on either end of the ball like he isn't a great off-ball defender sometimes he'll miss possessions I um, mean miss rotations I mean whenever he needs to sink but what he's done on the ball, I think some of it stems from the fact that the Pacers just really challenge those players when they come in because they kind of have to. Like, if you're going to use Victor as a roamer, Boyan Bogdanovich a lot of time was drawing, was most of the time drawing the best wing assignment. TJ Warren's drawing the best wing assignment. There's times where they've put him out there against Devin Booker. So uh, I think TJ also just kind of wanted to shake the reputation they have. I'd like to give most of the credit to the Pacers, and I think that, that Dan Burke is really good at what he does as a defensive coordinator. But at the same time, I can look at Jeremy Lamb and tell you that like the, the same effect hasn't happened to him. <laughs> uh, so like you can watch him, and, and some of his closeouts, he comes out at such an angle that he just gives up wide-open drives, and, and he causes other people to have to help more than they probably should. So I, I kind of just want to credit TJ Warren for really coming in with the attitude of you know leaving one team that was playing for – more for lottery picks to coming here in a winning environment and kind of wanting to shake what people had thought of him on that end of the floor and really just challenging himself too. Uh, and Justin Holiday has been pretty good for them too, right? He, he's also, by the way, the guy that I think people just don't realize how one old he is, but he, he had a good start to last year in Chicago and then all of a sudden fell off and he's with the Pacers now. And he's, he shot really well from three this year. And like I said, it, it feels like he's defended up more than he's ever had to. Right. He plays the four 
a lot. I mean, off the bench, that's pretty much what he always is doing because he's out there with McConnell and his brother and and Doug and and Sabonis. But I mean, he'll he gives up heft in that position, and sometimes that leads them to need to double, and then that can create some chain reactions. But I mean, he battles, and otherwise, like. I pointed this out in a, we, we did a thing where we wrote like five things we miss about the Pacers and Justin Holiday was one of them for me because he just does so much off the ball that then creates turnovers in other places with the way he denies passing lanes. And, and sometimes they'll put him as the top before Victor got back, he would be the person guarding the top perimeter player because he, he there makes him a little bit more switchable. I mean, Justin has been one of my favorite role players to watch in a while because I've told this to a couple other people, but People may forget that when Paul George came back from his serious injury, uh, he didn't want to play the four. He balked at that, which to me made sense. But C.J. Miles offered himself up as kind of the sacrificial lamb and was going to play the four in those lineups, and he didn't hold up. Like, he tried, but, like, his three-point shot took a beating from from playing up a position. Mm-hmm. And Justin's been doing that all year, and he's still shooting the lights out of the ball. So I think he deserves a lot of credit. And I suspect that the Pacers will have some competition for him in free agency when when time comes because three and D wings are already, you know, pretty highly coveted and Justin's definitely lived up to that billing. So, yeah. So having the, the one year $4.7 million deal and only having the non-bird rights on him, that could end up being tough, but I guess to their benefit, uh, there at least isn't a ton of cap space floating around. So no one's going to come throwing anything crazy. Are you ready for the annual question that, that you have to be tired of answering? Dan, what are you doing to me? Is it is it is it my favorite question that I that I get yelled at every time I answer? It is. Is what is the latest verdict on the Turner Sabonis pairing? The offensive numbers still aren't great, but they also just feel they they do work defensively, and Miles Turner is a huge part of that. But they're also just. I almost feel like yes, this is their third season together, but I, I need to see more of them for me personally because the Pacers just haven't been healthy this year. And I'm wondering if there's still that push and pull there where, you know, they're both about to be expensive next season when Sabonis's extension kicks in. And I think it's clear that they're not a, a great offensive fit, but at the same time, they've, they've done enough where at least you want to see more with, Hey, what could they look like with this version of the Pacers? Uh, if the Pacers ever get, we'll say close to healthy, because I assume Jeremy Lamb is going to miss a huge chunk of next season. Right. So I kind of feel like there's always something hanging out there. Like originally they weren't playing together at all two years ago. And then last year when they were playing together, it was just a means to get Sabonis minutes. So like there was nothing specific being run for them. And then like this year, there's the whole caveat of, you know, Oladipo's missed a ton of games and Brogdon's been in and out and they've just had a lot of injuries, period. So you kind of want to wait and see what else you can see. I will say in the last like month or so, I've been encouraged by the fact that they've been a lot more experimental with with some of their defensive matchups. They've they've been willing to move miles away, even I mean, taking his defensive his rim protection away so that he can guard like a Giannis or a Perzingis so that Sabonis isn't the person out there. Um, you'll see them run a little bit. I mean, finally, I said this the other day, but the, the clouds broke open and finally they ran a roll replace action at the end of the game with both of them. I mean, early in the year, they actually weren't finishing a lot of games with, with both of them on the floor together, which to me is somewhat problematic. I mean, I give Nate McMillan credit for, for pulling some of the right strings and knowing what matchups he wants to have out there at what time. But like, if you're going to be paying both of these people $40 million, ideally, I mean, combined, ideally you want them to be able to be out on the floor together. And there's a couple games here lately where like they played the Spurs and the Spurs didn't have LaMarcus Aldridge 
And so they're out there, you know, chasing around a small ball lineup with like Rudy Gay at nominal five. And they closed with that with two centers on the floor and won that game, which obviously the Spurs were depleted. But that's not something you would have seen them do at the beginning of the season. And I think both of them have gotten better. Like it doesn't really show in Miles's raw production numbers. You're not going to see that because all of it's actually lower than where it would have been because his touches are way down. But um, he puts the ball on the floor a lot more naturally. He'll he'll duck in at the mid post and, and shoot over the top of a switch, which isn't something you would have really seen him do. And um, he's taken more corner threes. Still not a lot, but last year he only took like 16 corner threes, which I think is important to making that duo work. I would still I would still prefer to see them running more actions where both of them are in motion at the same time what, with Sabonis rolling and Miles coming to the top of the key. I don't know why that's something that we don't see every game. I don't know what the answer is for that. But having said all of that, I did look at the number when they're just playing the top uh, five teams in the East, top six here with Milwaukee, Toronto, Philadelphia, Boston, and Miami. And they're actually, those two are minus 10 per 100 and the minutes that they, yeah, yeah, <laughs> not, not great at all. And, and I'll say that like Oladipo missed quite a few of those games. And like when one of the games in Miami Brogdon was out and Oladipo was out and they're like starting Aaron holiday and stuff, but you can look at some of it. And like, if, if we're going to use Milwaukee as the ultimate measuring stick in the East, I don't really like the operation of that pairing against Milwaukee because you're not taking advantage of Brooke Lopez dropping deep because Brooke Lopez is guarding Sabonis. And meanwhile, Sabonis is getting limited quite a bit because they're so good at taking away the rim. They double, they triple him. I wrote that in an article a couple weeks ago. And then, you know, it, it is Miles... Miles is doing better. He's taken more threes this year, but he sometimes can be a real moth to the flame of wanting for some reason to come down there when Sabonis is posting or not knowing exactly where he wants to space himself out. So, and, and some of that also exists against Toronto. They've had problems with the Baca this year, whether, you know, they're going to downsize or is Miles doing it and taking, chasing a out to the perimeter. Is Sabonis doing that? Who's the person guarding Siakam? Like it hasn't been super workable and either one of those matchups. So I don't, I think that there's ways that they each kind of uh, hold each other back slightly where they don't get to be their, the best version of what they could be. If you, if you could see somebody out there with either one of them that could shoot threes on a higher volume or defend mm-hmm. fours, like, I don't know who this mythical person is going to be, <laughs> but um, I think that it would work better for either one just to get miles into that five spot where he's actually getting to drag a rim protector out into space against the other team's best lineup. Not just when Sabonis isn't out on the floor or for Sabonis's sake, having somebody that can also shoot deeper threes and doesn't do quite as much self-checking as miles can do sometimes where for whatever reason, he doesn't even look at the rim when he does have a shot and kind of pass out of some of those looks. And just shoot a higher variety of threes. Like Miles isn't somebody that routinely is going to like create space for himself or be able to take a step back. Like, you know, somebody like a, a Gallo would be And and don't people listen to this. I'm not saying that they're going to like go after Danilo Gallinari. I'm just using his, as an example. <laughs> <laughs> I do sort of wonder if it would be a cleaner fit if Miles Turner had that. And I don't know if it's a, I think it's definitely a, it's a, it's a Miles Turner thing, but I also don't know if maybe it's a little bit of a, a Pacers pecking order thing, but like, what if he had the, you know, looking at per minute, like the Jaron Jackson Jr. three point volume or, or something like that. And like you said, if there, if he was ma- able to mix in maybe like more one dribbles or take a step back on his own and fire off those shots. Right. I think it's a function of both, honestly, because they, they played, I remember this game pretty vividly. They played the jazz 
and uh, Miles is out there and in matchups where Sabonis wasn't on the floor. And to me, if Rudy Gobert is on the floor and Miles is on the floor at the same time, you should just be pressing the pick and pop button like over and over again and be hoping that Miles can pull him away so you can get more drives. And he would, they ran it and he would like either just pat like four or five times in that game, he either passed out of it or he automatically drove it, which I'm glad that he's, he can do that if somebody's closing out on him, but he also needs to be able to take some of those shots. But at the same time, his touches are the lowest they've been since his rookie year. So, I mean, he's definitely been marginalized in the offense, so I'm not going to knock him too hard on that. Um, and I'm also wondering if, or why you, why is it that Miles Turner, if they're going to break up these two, the assumption is that they'll move Miles Turner. And I'm wondering if it's just the matter of, Sabonis is probably more valuable to Indiana than he is to other teams. And because what Turner does is just more scalable across the board or easier to to fit in uh, across various rosters, that he then nets you the bigger return anyway. Is that what's going on when it's that mindset? Or do you maybe have a a contrarian one uh, compared to what seems to be the consensus? Right. So a year ago, I probably would have told you that they would have leaned towards Miles because they were a more, I mean, they were definitely defense first. And some of the signals that they were giving would have told you that. Like, I mean, this is a very simple thing, but when they were at media day and they have make two players available, the two players available were Victor and Miles, which kind of leads you to believe like, oh, these are, you know, their two, these are their two guys. Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. Sabonis up there. But I mean, this year so much like their offensive system pretty much is Sabonis a lot of the time. He props up the bench. He's central to what the starters do off the dribble with picks. He's such a good screen setter. I mean, I wrote this whenever he was named an all-star. Like, it's hard to come up with an action that doesn't actively involve him. And when you look at the numbers that are on-off offensively, their offense plummets to, like, I, I want to say 29th or 30th when he isn't on the floor. So I think, I think that's pretty important for a Nate McMillan coach team because Nate's going to be a more defensive-minded coach. So if you have a person out there like Sabonis that you can rely on to to make reads and create things the way, be a playmaker the way Sabonis is, I think that that's valuable to them. But what you said I also think is true. I think they might end up getting a little bit better return for Miles. Um, I mean, even with that, there's certain things like finding the right four to put beside him that I think will maximize what he can do will be a little bit tricky because like, you know, Thad's better than Sabonis at guarding out on the perimeter. But again, a lot of the time, you know, Miles isn't drawing a five with a Thad like player. So you're going to want somebody around him that's going to be able to shoot enough threes where Mm -hmm. fives are actually going to guard him, which I mean, I know, I know that'll be out there. I mean, I find it interesting because the Pacers seem to have like this, keep carrying a torch for Aaron Gordon. I feel like every year there's like an Aaron Gordon, uh, an Aaron Gordon rumor. Like there was one in, I forget which, which New York outlet had that even this year. And it was just thrown in too. I think it was like right around the trade deadline, the rite of passage. Oh, and the Pacers inquired. about Yes. Gordon. Yes. Because before that had his player option, there was rumors that they were interested. Then like a year later, I think they were connected with like something with Aaron holiday in Orlando. And now here it is again. And like, nobody said what the, what, who would be going where or anything or what was discussed or who initiated those talks. But it's kind of interesting to think about how Aaron Gordon would fit with Sabonis. If that, if that's their thinking, like, I don't really understand that to me, to me, the best way to unlock Aaron Gordon and hopefully tap into a little bit more of his potential is to make him a screener and somewhat of a playmaker out of that at the four spot. So I don't really see, I mean, I'd have to do more research, but the the fit with he and Sabonis, I think would be rather interesting. Yeah. I would think he's a better fit with Turner, uh, but he was, he, his playmaking at Gordon's really 
upped this year in Orlando, yeah. but they it almost hasn't been coming the way that you would like to see it, where it's, you know, they have him running um, pick and rolls. And like you said, could he be more of a playmaker where he's, you know, coming out of screens and like, is he throwing passes on the roll more or something like that? It doesn't seem like that many of his assists were coming that way, which could also be a function of how bad Orlando's offense is in general. They don't have a ton of shooters either. Right. Um, who's more important to the Pacers' future, Aaron Holiday or Goga? Right. So I think some of this has to be unpacked because it it's somewhat dependent on will they like use one of their exceptions to try to fill um, a hole where where Jeremy Lamb would have been playing. Like if they're going to do that, then Aaron becomes he's going to be somewhat marginalized in the rotation yet again. And and if, if they're going to move a Turner or Sabonis, which I think is going to be kind of difficult to pull the trigger on that when you didn't have a playoffs to kind of see how they fit. And if there is a playoffs of some sort, I mean, how much time are you really going to have to be negotiating, yeah. you know, t- trades before another season kicked in. But if something like that happens, then I think that you push, you would push Goga up there. I mean, if they would have traded one of the two of them at the deadline, I can tell you that I I wouldn't have felt confident in Goga participating in a playoffs this year. Like, I think I still believe in his overall potential, but he does not hold screens long enough and his defense has a long way to go. (laughs) Um, He doesn't like sometimes he'll just like stick to the dunker spot when he should be going over to trap the box. Like he's kind of lives in no man's land and pick and roll defense. So, I mean, he's still pretty raw on that end of the floor, probably more raw than I expected. But a lot of the stuff that I had watched of him, which I don't do a lot of draft coverage, but a lot of the stuff that I had seen of him his European teams were, were running zone or sometimes they were switching five positions, which would, I think would be a little bit easier over there when you're not playing against as much mm-hmm. speed as they are here. But um, if, if the rosters remain exactly as they are, then the answer is going to be Aaron. Cause I mean, they've already been playing Aaron next to TJ McConnell most of the season. And, and I think Goga would still remain mostly on the outs, but I think you had this in your question. I mean, there isn't a lot of opportunity for upward mobility for Aaron because obviously he's never going to be playing in front of Malcolm or Victor. Right. So will they use it? Will they try to think of him as more of like a trade piece to maybe address some other holes that they have? And then how does that impact things with Justin? Because I think Justin's pretty important to them. And if they move his brother, I don't know if he would be super interested in sticking around. That's a good point that I, I didn't think of. They really just need to figure out how to get Drew there. So all the holidays. Right, the right. Team, finally, uh, Aaron Holiday's a player that you just, you want to be high on too. When you watch how hard he plays on defense, where he's clearly not the biggest, but he's, he's super strong. And then on offense where it seems like he only knows one speed and that's breakneck. Uh, I just wonder if his game could be, everyone talks about, I feel like consistency a lot with him. I'm wondering if that has to do with, can he play more, under control can there be like a little bit more i don't know if the word is fluidity but maybe it is fluidity to his game is there is there something to that is that something that the pacers are are waiting on or or looking for from him right i mean i think a lot of it's his decision making like early in the year when he got thrust into a bigger role i mean in december i remember he had some really good games where he was kind of keeping his head up and surveying the floor and making some passes out of some of the like one three ghost screen stuff they see where he's actually like finding rollers on time and on target and it kind of seemed like he was trending upwards and then January rolled around and I think you even pointed this around that is it pointed this out that his efficiency really dipped and I kind of wonder uh how much of 
of like Victor saying like he announced pretty early in, in January, like, here's my return date. I'm coming back at the end of the month. And like, was, was Aaron pressing because of that? How much has he been pressing because TJ McConnell is there? I mean, I know the general consensus has kind of been that TJ has pushed him, but sometimes I watch it and I think that Aaron comes in and he, he presses because, you know, that person's going to be competing for my minutes or, or I'm going to be out of the rotation. And then sometimes he, he, he's already very shoot first and he can Mm -hmm. be taking shots or like trying, he fights against himself sometimes whenever he's coming off a pick with what he needs to be doing. Like sometimes I think he can be his own worst enemy with what, with how he runs the floor as the point guard. And I think that's sometimes why the bench unit works as well as it does, because you wouldn't think that with him, I mean, his size, ideally he would play a one, but when he plays off the bench, he's the two and TJ McConnell's making more of that decision, making more of the decisions. And he can just kind of sit over there and, and spot up threes and make decisions off a spot up, uh, situation more than, and running pick and roll. But you kind of, uh, touched on this already, but I know they'll only be working with, uh, the mid-level in free agency. Uh, is there something that, or some, I, I don't want to say someone because the free agency class is so all over the place right now, but is, is there something specific you'd like to see them target with that? Or do you think that, you know, if Aaron holiday is going to end up getting more than 120% of this year's salary, which I think would put him at like 6 million or something like that is the focus then just, just trying to bring him back. And then I, I guess they run into some issues because even if you, let's say Justin holiday comes back at 120% of uh, this year's salary, I don't think you then have enough uh, room under the tax to use the entire uh, full mid-level, which is valued at $9.8 million right now, but uh, I don't know what's going to happen with the salary cap projection. So is, is the focus maybe going to be more on just keeping Justin Holiday as opposed to targeting anyone specific, whereas you mentioned trying to replace a little bit of the production that you lose with Jeremy Lamb being out for so long? Right. I mean, I think that's going to be a really tough balancing act, and some of it is kind of hard to know based on where the cap's actually going to be or how that's going to work out. But I mean, I, I really think personally that they need to address the four spot more than about anything. Like mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the second unit, I mean, I wrote about this with Aaron at the two and TJ at the one and shooters and Sabonis. That, that was one of their best lineups all year. So I don't feel bad with them playing that. And if they come into a spot where they need more size before Jeremy comes back, then maybe you throw Edmund Sumner out there and let, let him hawk the ball around. I mean, he's a pretty electric, fun player to watch at times and small bursts. And, and, but I think that they just need to, I don't know who the person is going to be. I haven't looked through uh, a lot of free agency stuff. I haven't moved into that. Maybe I'm just not ready to let go of this season yet. I don't know what it is, but I mean, whether they keep Turner and Sabonis and they find somebody on the cheap that they can throw out there at the four or not, I just don't think that Justin quite has the ability to be somebody that can get out and defend the three-point line and be able to to guard against bigger uh, players at the four. And I think that's something that they that, that, that they could use, even though he can hit the threes at that spot pretty well. I think that they know that they need that that they need to address that just because of some of the the rumors, whether, you know, like I said, I don't really understand the Aaron Gordon thing or exactly how they would acquire Aaron Gordon, but that there's been enough smoke around those types of players, even if it isn't him, that I think that ultimately they want to address that that opening. I I still find it incredible that Aaron Gordon is the player that they remain so infatuated with. That's not even a shot at Aaron Gordon. It just feels like that's the Maybe player. They're that... like really feeling themselves after taking Victor from Orlando, like <laughs> not directly from Orlando, but maybe they're just like, look, 
this person blossomed under our watch from you and we're going to do the same thing with Aaron Gordon. I don't know. It just comes up like every year. Well, so I I was talking with one of my colleagues at Bleach Report, uh, hypothetical trades a while back, and I ultimately the we came up with a just a three team deal because this is the type of thing I love fake trades. Um, these are the type of things that I discuss all the time. And we came up with, it was a three-team deal that got the Pacers, Aaron Gordon and Derek White, but you were trading away Miles Turner. And I ultimately felt that that wasn't enough value for Miles Turner. And as you just talked about, the fit with Gordon and Sabonis isn't as clean as it would be with Gordon and Turner. And so where would you land? If that was just a prospective return, is that enough for you to even think about moving Turner at that point? Or you need to see either more or just a different type of four-man coming in altogether? Right. I mean, I think ideally that that needs to be somebody who's going to space the floor and hit threes at a high volume if it's going to be with Sabonis. I mean, I would want to sit and really watch a lot more of Aaron Gordon before I like cast judgment on him. But like I said, I just think there's already not enough screens to go around a lot of the time for Miles just to play and pick and pop. And I really think that Aaron Gordon would be best served as a playmaker out of the short roll. And if that's going to be with Sabonis, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. And neither one of them are hitting north of like, what is Aaron Gordon at as a shooter this year at the three, which I don't know what type of threes he's really getting, but I mean, neither one of them are going to be, you know, stretching the floor at a high level. So I, I don't know that I would be really up for that unless I like sit and watch film and notice something like yeah. I haven't watched a ton of magic games, but obviously Kevin Pritchard sees something and I'm certainly not going to Twitter dunk on, on Kevin Pritchard. Like he's made enough good moves that if there was something there that he really liked, I would probably be thinking really long and hard before I was like, Oh, what are you doing? Oh, they've definitely earned the benefit of the doubt. It's just normally when you see this type of lust for a player for so long, he's, he's a distinct all-star, which Aaron Gordon very much is not. <laughs> yeah. What's the, so this is my final question for you what's the biggest misconception about the Pacers or the most over undercovered thing about this team that that you would just like or that you could note for our listeners right so I don't know if this is necessarily a misconception but I will point it out like a lot of times I see on Twitter and sometimes even some Pacer fans are like yeah why is TJ McConnell playing like why why do the Pacers value TJ McConnell more than they value Aaron Holiday and I really don't first of all I don't think that that is the case but Aaron has a lot of like really high highs and really low lows, whereas TJ um, is kind of more steady, but he's also really good at keeping the offense moving. Like this is a stat that people are going to make fun of. Like just prepare yourself. They're going to make fun of it. Not on this but, podcast. They won't. <laughs> That's it. But he's, he's third in assists for 36 minutes, which I realize is a very noisy stat because that's dependent upon the fact that he plays, you know, with Doug McDermott and Justin holiday out there who are both good three point shooters. And the fact that Pacers guards have a pretty high time of possession, but at the same time, like he does things from the point guard position that last year, neither Darren Collison or, or Corey Joseph were doing. He's already assisted on more corner threes than either one of them did, which again, you can peg on the fact that he plays with more shooters, but he also has a really good eye for throwing skip passes and getting the ball, throwing darts to the other side of the floor. And he also is keenly aware of his limitations, which I would like to ask the Pacers sometimes because you'll notice this year that if he plays minutes with like Malcolm Brogdon or Victor, where one of the two of them is going to be handling the ball more, he sets a lot of Ram screens, which is a screen for the ball screener. Okay. And, and, or he'll be used as a screener in drag sets, or sometimes uh, they'll use him as screeners another way. So I kind of want to know, like, is that something that he just in, intuitively knows I need to do this because no one's going to guard me as a three point shooter? Because Corey Joseph was not doing that a year ago. And he, while he does shoot threes, he was not a good three point shooter. 
So I give him a lot of credit for the fact that he finds workarounds for like, it's not just him standing in a corner and being completely ignored. Like he's good cutting behind defenders. He's good at cutting. Like I would call it a go and catch where he cuts ahead of the action from the slot so that he can get the ball and people just aren't standing there looking at him. And because he isn't playing with Ben Simmons anymore, like when you had both of them on the floor, I've Ben Simmons would benefit from having another playmaker, but obviously they are both non-shooters. When he comes to Indiana and he's out there with Aaron and Justin and Doug McDermott off the bench and he can run pick and roll with Sabonis, he's done a, re- a lot of really good things. So like, I don't think that Nate McNillan deserves to be completely knocked for the fact that TJ McConnell came in and, and started playing backup point guard, especially since Aaron's playing minutes beside him and Aaron's also been vaulted into a starting role a lot this year. Like his... I don't think it's necessarily been good for him that his role has bounced all over the place, but it isn't like Aaron hasn't played. Right. I was looking this up while you were talking. They've played almost a thousand possessions together. And so this doesn't seem like it has to be an either or situation. Right. Well, Caitlin, I, Oh, go ahead. I mean, I, it's like if Jeremy was, if Jeremy was healthy and sliding back, then it would be because obviously oh, you're point. not them all, but, but we never got to that point really. So yeah, and, <laughs> only uh, very, and unless there's a major change, they're not going to get to that point for quite some time. So I have, I don't. Is there a prognosis for when they expect Lamb to return? I can't be before next year's All Star break, could it? That no. would be like super if, if he played by January, I'd be very surprised. I haven't heard anything like they don't really hand out timelines a lot this early on. I mean, they didn't even with Victor, but if he was back by January, I'd be very surprised. This is still a team, though. If we're if we're trying to be optimistic and say that maybe there's an NBA playoffs, this is just not a team. This is still the team that I wouldn't want to face. They'd be scarier if they were at full strength, and I want to see what Malcolm Brogdon looks like when he comes back, and they need to get more minutes pretty much under everyone's belts like together, but they would be... I, I, they would just be a team that I feel like, no, I wouldn't pick them in if they advance and they end up playing the Bucks. but like I don't think there's another team that you look at and say oh, Indiana's gone in five games. There just doesn't seem to be that type of matchup out there. And so I wouldn't want to have to face them in the first or even or even the second round. Right, no, and I think that's why, you know, teams want to be in that two spot because you're going to get to play, you know, no offense, but a much worse team than what the top six are. I mean, I don't know if I, I mean... I kind of am interested to see them play Boston again, not because I necessarily am saying, oh, they would beat Boston, but I, I, I like matchups where you know, they're a big group of wings and, and which team would assert which, because the first time those two teams played each other, like for instance, Miles and Sabonis, I think played like 13 minutes together and the Pacers went small and like the Pacers strength is more in their depth. Whereas mm-hmm. Boston, you know, has kind of struggled with their bench and they're, and they're more top heavy with their guys. So I, I like matchups where there's a contract like that of styles. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much, as always, for for coming on. I really appreciate your insight. It's always fun talking hoops with you. If you people are not following Caitlin on Twitter, you need to remedy that immediately. At C2 underscore Cooper, fantastic writer for Indy Cornrows. I say it all the time. uh, Us in the basketball world don't deserve you, just with your writing and your insight. You're one of my favorite writers, so I appreciate you being so generous with your time. And you can bet that I will be pestering you again in the future, perhaps when we have a scheduled off season and actual fallout from that to deal with. Well, I, I actually like anytime I get asked back on by you, I just think, well, good, because I don't have a lot of, a lot of various podcasts that I do, but that means that I wasn't a complete train wreck the last time I was on this podcast and that at least somebody clicked it and listened to it. So, <laughs> yeah. Hey, our Pacers podcast with Caitlin Cooper relative to other single team deep dives we do do very well. So I, I appreciate you for that.
<laughs> well, thanks. I'm glad I can help you out with some extra clicks and listens. Thanks, Caitlin. I'll talk to you soon. You too. Welcome back, Tara. How I know this is a loaded question during these times, but how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I am so happy to be here talking Trailblazers because it's just, as we were talking about earlier, it's just a weird time and to have something that I love that I can latch onto and concentrate on for a little while rather than worrying about what's going on outside. I mean, I'm in Portland, so we're not like at the epicenter, uh, you know, a place like New York where there's lots going on. It's a beautiful, gorgeous day outside. The weather has been amazing. But, um, yeah, it's weird times. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, it's important to stay up to date with everything. But I, I also think it's important to talk about Gary Trent and what he can do off the dribble. <gasps> like, you know, there, it's two different kinds of importance, but they're both important. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to talk about Gary. Oh, uh, before, before I get – that was great that you brought him up and we were talking, like, be- before we even hopped on the pod and I was we were trying to schedule this. It was great that you brought Gary Trent Jr. up right off the bat. That was – fantastic. I did want to start more macro just because I tend to be a pessimist and I I would be a little bit shocked if the NBA season resumed this year. And then even if it does, uh, are they going to go right into the playoffs? Is there going to be some, some kind of way to have, if not a few games left in the regular season that matter, a tournament that would allow the the race for the eight seed in the West to, to unfold with uh, any sort of, of mystery. And either way, if the Blazers, you know, if the season's over or if the Blazers wind up not making the playoffs, should the season resume in some form, they are a team that I think people gravitate towards to talk about big picture stuff where it's like, oh, clearly the Dame and CJ backcourt, like they've reached their peak already. You can't win a title with them. Uh, when I came on your podcast earlier in the year, I had zero pulse on this, but you and your co-host Danny had mentioned to me that there were people that were displeased with the job Terry Stotts was doing. And so I just look at this season and the Blazers, they're eight games under 500, and let's say they're probably not going to make the playoffs, so the season isn't going to resume. Can you actually take anything serious away from what happened this year when you know how many injuries, specifically to Nurk, Collins, and Hood, that they've dealt with? So, short answer, no. Okay. <laughs> and moving on. So, <laughs> well, so here's the thing. I, this is what I had to continually remind myself of all season long. On March 27th last year, when Nurkish went down and broke his leg, that was to me, that was like, okay, next year is going to be a gap year. Mm-hmm. I truly did not believe that the Blazers could compete, you know, against the elite in the league without Yusuf Nurkic. And the fact that they went on to have that, you know, a really great run to the Western Conference Finals. That was like a total bonus and totally unexpected. I am not a religious person, but I swear like <laughs> that there was the hand of God involved in that because that was just, that was just not, uh, that I don't want to say it shouldn't have happened because obviously when you have Damian Lillard, anything can happen. But that was a total surprise. And also moving into this season, thinking that they were going to go up against, you know, the best teams without Yusuf Nurkic, to me, I just, I, I got caught up in, you know, all of the, you know, we're, Mario Hazonia is going to come in and he's going to be the difference maker. And, <laughs> you know, Hassan Whiteside is going to be great and all that stuff. You know, I get caught up. That's what, you know, that's what they're paid to do is they're paid to get the fan base excited and want to come to the games. And I fall for it every single time. But I always go back to when Yusuf Nurkic went down and remembering like Damon CJ without Yusuf Nurkic 
is is not the team that I saw, you know, going all of the way. So long and the short of it, I don't think that we were ever going to learn a, a, anything about the basketball this season. We may have learned about, you know, more about the potential of Zach Collins, but that didn't happen because he got injured three games into the season. We may have learned a lot more about Rodney Hood because we would have had him for the full season, except that he went down. Um, he we was did learn well, that. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He was playing. So like we could have learned some things I think about individuals, but I think what we ended up learning or we will end up learning, you know, before next season starts is we'll not learn about basketball, but we'll learn about how these guys deal with adversity because they'd never really dealt with a, a this much adversity, one thing after another, they'd been incredibly lucky in terms of their, um, health. They mm-hmm. hadn't had a lot of major injuries and to get all of this stuff to have so many changes, roster changes that are, were injury driven or not. I mean, just seeing how they come through that. I think that is going to be the thing that we learn about. I think the one thing that, well, actually semi-related to what you were saying, the, just still that Lillard picture, that snapshot after the shot against OKC last year still has to be like one of the top five NBA pictures of all time, where he's just under the pile and you see like Al Farouk Aminu looks like he might be getting squashed to death. That's just one of my favorite photo- photos of all time. Just from Lillard's That picture face. stresses yeah. me out so much. You wor- Are you worried about Aminu too? I wasn't sure that he was alive after that picture. <laughs> <laughs> I w- well, I was super worried about Damien because uh, he doesn't tend to, like obviously he doesn't tend to celebrate. Like he, he keeps it, you know. Um, and I've heard him talk about times like back when he was in high school or whatever and like not wanting to celebrate till it was all over. But also not liking like the horseplay afterward because he right. doesn't want to get hurt. And I was just like, oh my God, don't hurt Damien. Like, just you guys stop jumping on him. I was so worried. And Maybe that was like the mom in me. I don't know. I, I don't was know. So worried is, is you don't see celebrations like that. And like, there's never that type of pile where you're not even after like finals victories. Like you don't really see that type of pile. So I, I could totally mm-hmm. understand the concern. They actually just replayed that game last night in Portland. I don't know. They're probably doing this all over the country in different um in different regions, but you know, the Blazers had been playing a lot of games on the local affiliate and they've been like, you know, some nineties games, some thousands games, you know, games from all over, you know, different times and places. Um, but that was the one that they played last night was the Oklahoma city game that ended with Dame's shot. And, um, I didn't turn it on until like, literally that shot <laughs> like because I had other things that I was going to do and I was recording and I was going to watch it later but I turned it on to that shot and uh the mayhem after that shot was like you were saying it was like it was like nothing like the the announcers just went dead quiet they just didn't say anything for like a good solid couple of minutes they just let the crowd scream they just let the cameras tell the story uh they had they caught like Kevin Calabro and Lamar heard the announcers like mm-hmm. Kevin Calabro is like just taking pictures the whole time. <laughs> um, and it was just, it was, it was super, it was super fun to watch. Um, yeah. And it's one of those shots too, where even if you're not like a, a Blazers fan or cover that team, like that's the shot where if you were watching, you just remember where you were. It, mm-hmm. It's just one of those moments. So uh, one of the, one of the, one of my favorite endings to a game that I've ever seen live uh, but what I was going to say, I think one of the things that probably sucks the most about this season, if there was to make any big picture concerns, would be it would have been nice to have seen at least a small sample of what 
Yusuf Nurkic looked like um, post leg injury? Is he still going to be the same on the short rolls or in the drop coverage? And then the other thing that I just never really registered with me, and I looked it up for something I was writing a few months ago, they still kind of need to see if he and Zach Collins can share the floor together for long periods of time. They've played 231 possessions together since 2017, 2018. And it of course checks out when you just look at sort of the timelines where, you know, Collins was a rookie. Then you have uh, Nurkic was injured granted later in the season last year. Um, but it was still at a point where they were trying to figure out, you know, can Zach Collins space the floor enough for those two to share the floor together. And so that was, uh, insofar as we might've gotten any answers to that question, that was something I might've been looking forward to or was looking forward to seeing um, towards the latter half of the season was one, what does Nurkic look like? And two, does, does Collins and Nurkic work up, up front together at the same time for long stretches? Mm -hmm. One of the most heartbreaking things to me, I mean, there's a lot of heartbreak over this COVID pandemic, don't get me wrong. But one of the things that is really sad for me is that Yusuf Nurkic was supposed to come back on March 15th and we were ready. Portland was ready. Like we were buzzing with excitement. He, uh, I was actually with some friends in Phoenix to watch Portland play, play Phoenix just a few days before. And we were there when he, they announced like the date that he was coming back and we were just like, Oh my God. And we just, we couldn't even think about anything the rest of the day. We were so excited to watch Nurkic come back. And like we were, we just, one of the things about Yusuf Nurkic coming back is like we've heard stories about his rehab and about him, you know, um, you know, any guy who whose whole identity is playing basketball who gets an injury is going to have there's got to be struggles right while they come back. And, you know, me and my friends, we just we wanted Nurkic to know so badly how much we believed in him and wanted him to come back and couldn't wait for him to come back and be a part of this team just in case he had any doubts. Mm-hmm. And for us to not be able to do that and not be able to welcome him back as a player, like he'd been hanging around the team and that'd been great. And every time he showed up on the Jumbotron, we all went wild. But I was so looking forward to cheering for him doing a basketball thing that I could just hardly wait. Yeah, so now, now you get to a point where we just... haven't been able to see that. Right. Because now right. you get to a point and, where, you know, they were talking about. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was saying, they were talking about whether or not Zach was going to be coming back. And I think, you know, when the season first started, we were all interested in just kind of seeing Zach, how he could come out on his own. And um, knowing that Yusuf Nurkic wasn't going to be in there, we thought that he was going to be there and probably be really helpful for Hassan Whiteside to play alongside. And, uh, you know, for us to not, you know, we were never really thinking that we were going to see much of that this season. So it's certainly disappointing we didn't too. But just not being able to welcome Yusuf Nurkic back was really rough. Yes, uh, that I, that has to be tough. And then now you get to a point where whenever basketball resumes, like it's he hasn't played in, <laughs> in over a year. And it could end up being substantially longer than that, depending on what happens with this season, when next season starts and all that. Yep. The next thing I want to talk about is, so Anthony Simons, it doesn't really feel like he made the leap uh, that people were anticipating. And maybe it was because the uh, he was sort of, his potential this year specifically might have been blown out of proportion. I think um, when you looked at what the Blazers did over the offseason, I assumed that it hinted that maybe there'd be a much bigger role for him. I think you still watch him play. You see his quick release, the escapism moves he can make off the dribble. And there's clearly a really good player there. Uh, but his efficiency had cratered after a relatively hot start. And 
I'm not sure, at least of the Blazers games I've watched. And then when you look at some of the numbers, it doesn't seem like he maybe has the the playmaking chops to lead those uh, Damian Lillard list lineups. And then the catch 22 there is he spends a lot of the time with CJ McCollum. And so of course you're going to make McCollum the, the primary ball handler in those situations. And I'm just wondering where, after everything that's happened this season, is it at all tougher to gauge uh, Simons's future with the team? I think that most observers in Portland would say that Anthony Simons is going to be fine. I think there was definitely a lot of hype for him. And it's weird because the way Portland has played for so many years is they, they've they always been absolutely committed to not being committed to a backup point guard. Like They right. never want to just have a pure backup point guard. They're always experimenting with, you know, staggering Damon CJ. You know, uh, there's been a lot of three-guard lineup play in the last few years. And there's always just been like, instead of, you know, a dedicated backup point guard, Guard. There's just been sort of this three guard rotation where they all play in there. So I think it's tricky for, you know, a young player like Anthony Simons, especially who, you know, didn't even have a year to uh, play in college. It's it's tricky. I think his game and his role was a uh, it was always going to be hard to, like, just come in and fit in perfectly. And um, I think partly because of, you know, his, uh, classmate, Gary Trent Jr. Uh, or, you know, he, uh, Gary, I think had an easier, more plug and play game. And so I think maybe from the outside, because Gary kind of caught fire, you know, he has a, a pretty straightforward shoot buckets and play defense. And we didn't really realize, I think how, uh, adept he was going to be a defense right off the bat. Whereas Anthony, um, he's going to have to do a lot more things with his time on the floor because he is expected to do a little bit more of creating both for himself and others. And he's got a lot more things that he, I think, needs to juggle when he's in the lineup. And so I think it's just sort of a natural progression. I think it takes longer to fit in. And then, you know, we just had so many lineup changes. They went through so many different lineups. And I think for a young guard to constantly be playing with different sets of players, you know, I don't, I don't think that most people um, hold that against Anthony Simons for not just like coming out and like being Donovan Mitchell. I think people understand that, uh, you know, it's going to take time. Yeah, I mean, he still is. He's not going to be 21 until until June, and he just he didn't play a ton last year. He played in. I, I guess I don't know. I think people saw that game against. I think it was the Kings last year, mm-hmm. and so you mm-hmm. just automatically assume that. And then again, just what I know, you said the Blazers never really commit to backup point guards, but it really just seemed like maybe they'd be banking more on him. But it's. I think it's easier to forget that he's only 20. He's only played in 85 games so far, and he's barely even played 1500 minutes on the floor. And so, like I said, I really watching him just someone who seems so comfortable working off the dribble and can get up shots so quickly you feel like they're eventually going to be to be fine I would just wonder if the Blazers look so much better down the road um, if he's able to kind of be more of a, a secondary playmaker too and again maybe he gets there because he's still young enough but that's still a big question that I have if they plan on kind of keeping this three guard core to a uh, three guard core together long term 
And it's interesting because, you know, it's always been over the last few years, it's always been a question of who's going to be, you know, know, the secondary ball handler, especially if like CJ's using this leading the second unit. But we also want to have other players in there who can, you know, make plays. And it was, you know, Evan Turner was doing that beforehand. And then when, you know, it it was our understanding that Mario Hazonia was going to get in there and handle the ball a lot. And so, you know, with the guys who aren't the, the Right. <laughs> you know, you're talking to someone who loves Alfred Camino. So, uh, <laughs> talking about adventure. Um, but you know, we have the, you know, the two, the two key guys. And then for so many years, it's just kind of been like whoever was having a good night, night ball handling wise, um, you know, they were going to be able to, you know, run the floor when one of the other guys wasn't. So yeah, whoever was the number three ball handler, it's been kind of fluid and to expect Anthony to just waltz right into that. I think that that was too much to expect from him. And understandably, again, because of the exact reasons we've just said, he's very young um, and he has to figure out a lot of things to do. There's a lot of things you got to figure out. And if you're all you're doing is catching and shooting, you know, that's a little bit more straightforward than trying to run plays you know, especially when you're in there with, you know, guys like now Carmelo Anthony, you know, <laughs> guys that you grew up watching and suddenly you're like, have to create things for them. I will say, I hope he doesn't pull a De'Aaron Fox and cut his hair during this, this play stoppage because he has awesome hair and I was devastated he does. when I saw that De'Aaron Fox cut his hair. Yeah, he did trim it and Naz Little trimmed his hair and that was very sad because Naz had some really great hair too. On a happier note, it is Gary Trent Jr. time. What what has impressed you the the most about him? So one of the things that's like my pet peeve is when people say uh, Gary Trent Jr. looks like he's going to be a real NBA player. And like, because I just feel like that's a little insulting to not only to him because he was obviously drafted to be a real NBA player and all the other NBA players too. But I, I get what people are getting at because in his second year, he looks like he knows what he's doing. Like he looks like he's figured out, you know, there's, I'm sure big differences if you're playing the college game versus the NBA game. And he seems really suited to the NBA game. The dude is like super stout, super strong, knows where he's supposed to be, you know, makes the right play, Mm -hmm. doesn't play outside of himself. And, you know, he was the, the 37th pick in the draft. And we thought he was going to follow the normal trajectory, which is the first two years, not, you know, year one, don't play at all. Year number two, play maybe a tiny little bit and then get pulled as soon as you make a mistake. And then the third year, you're a part of the lineup. But just out of necessity, he needed to play more and he absolutely stepped up and, and played and never seemed to shy away. And like I said, never seemed to try to, try to do too much or um and then so he was playing defense like we we knew that he was a shooter uh mm-hmm. and he proved that by shooting i think over 40 percent from three um but he could be a real pest and my one of my favorite parts of gary trent jr this year was him getting inside donovan mitchell's head and <laughs> like he got in donovan mitchell's head and like even after the game donovan mitchell was like well i don't know who gary trent jr thinks he is he can come up and talk smack to me and i was like oh, gary trent jr know he's a guy who's in your head and you know <laughs> just for him to not be afraid to do that was just wonderful to watch yeah i mean he's 
he like defended some pretty tough guards when you even just look at his defensive matchup data. Like he spent a bunch of time on mm-hmm. Lonzo Ball, but he healed, and so that's not easy to do. The thing that has taken me aback most is I didn't realize that he could like do things so comfortably off the dribble. And I'm not even talking about like you know attacking closeouts from beyond the arc, but he'll come around like screens and he can just dribble into these like little in between like they're, they're like step backs or just these pull-up jumpers mm-hmm. and it just he looks so comfortable doing it and it's just n- nothing I ever would have yeah obviously I didn't watch him in college I'm not a college basketball guy just not something that I ever could have expected and to see that they have another guy who can really do that when arguably you have four players on the roster who can already do that it's it's just absolutely wild I think people weren't as prepared for him to be able to get his own shot as well as being able to, like, just like you were talking about, I thought, you know, catch and shoot three, this is going to be great. But it's like, oh, we've got a step back three now. Okay. (laughs) That's what we're doing. Uh, You know, and I saw him run some plays that were similar to some of the stuff that Mo Harkless was doing. You know, he's, he's long and he's, but he's also just like real stout. When I watch him, he reminds Reminds me of Wesley Matthews, and that might be sacrilege for some people, but just that tenacity with which he plays and just not wasting any energy, you know, like I said before, playing outside of himself, like he will just paste himself, you know, as a defender to somebody, but not make the silly move. You know, he'll, mm-hmm. he'll just patiently wait and, you know, he gets steals. He's often like, you know, the guy who steers somebody into the other player so the other player can get a steal. So he just, uh, he's just a delight to watch. And it's just, you know, when, when it became clear that this was not the Blazers most likely run for a championship series (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and it became time to focus on the young players it was just a delight to find him there, just a gem. He's a gem. Plus, he's just a really great kid to talk to. Like, people, when he, they interview him, he just always has great stuff to say. And I, I hope that the Blazers can can keep him around once his – because he was a second-round pick, but they immediately gave him, I think, a three-year contract. Yeah, he's under contract for another guaranteed year uh, at mm-hmm. $1.7 million, which is obviously – a steal, and then they at least have bird rights on him in, in twenty full bird rights on him in twenty twenty one. So that helps. And then it's it really is like you said though. There's yes, he can do like some additional things that, but maybe you know people like me who are only chopper in for like a a game here and there, like that will take a like catch us off guard. But there's a real value in those guys on teams that are trying to compete for something who don't actually try to play outside of themselves. And and a lot of his stuff, even when he's creating his own shot, it does feel like it's it's coming within the flow of the offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and he has nights, you know, like he had one night where he went six of seven from three and he also just, he does kind of these sort of, uh, you know, there's a Gary Trent flu game. You know, I know everybody knows about the Michael Jordan flu game, but there is a Gary Trent flu game. game. Yeah. <laughs> but on, uh, it was the night before his 21st birthday, they were playing in Dallas and he was sick. And like all the players on the team that night were like, we can't believe Gary played because he was, you know, so ill. Uh, he had to like come out of that game and go get an IV cause he needed fluids. And then the next night was his 21st birthday and he was sick that night and he scored like 30 points. And he just, uh, so he has a little bit of a folklore, uh, you know, uh, vibe to him as well. Are, can you tell me a little bit about what 
the Carmelo Anthony and Hassan, White, Hassan Whiteside experiences have been like. I respect that Carmelo Anthony was plucked out of an empty gym near you and is shooting 37.5% from three, uh, even though those numbers, if you look at different points of the season, they really have waxed and waned a little bit. Uh, the Hassan Whiteside experience has been a little bit tougher for me personally to get on board with, even though you, you again look at his individual numbers, you can look at some of his rim protecting numbers, and he comes across as like he's helping, but I just I don't think there's a player in the NBA that, that I trust less. And there does seem to be a stark difference with how much the Blazers <laughs> can rely on him in drop coverage than what they could really do with Yusuf Nurkic last season. And so am I just being like batshit biased here, or has the Hassan Whiteside experience been a little bit rockier than some of the numbers might actually say? Yes and yes. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Whiteside in a minute. Um so Carmelo Anthony, from a fan's perspective, totally saved the season for me. <laughs> it was dark. It was getting it was dark. real dark. <laughs> and uh, Carmelo Anthony came and there was so much hand-wringing over Carmelo Anthony coming. And, you know, all the narratives that came along with him about whether or not he could succeed and, you know, why he flamed out in OKC and Houston and blah, 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 blah. All that happened. And, uh, like I had the summer before I was just sort of didn't really know much about Carmelo Anthony. And so I had just ha happened to have talked to a whole bunch of people from different fan bases where he'd played before and nobody really had bad things to say about him. They were like, well, he's a good dude. Like, yeah, he went and he followed the money and that wasn't great, but like, you know, and he, yeah, he said that he wouldn't come off the bench, but you know, guys say what they're going to say. And so I pr had a pretty open mind when he came to Portland, more so than a lot of people. Like, mm. there were a lot of people who just, like, hit the roof. They were just like, that just reeks of desperation. Like, <laughs> okay, yeah, but where were the Blazers at that point? They were at a point where it wasn't fun. And, like, if the team isn't going to win, they should at least be fun. And they weren't fun. And then Carmelo Anthony came. And, hey, guess what? It was fun. Like, he, the Blazers, like, Damian Lillard is a superstar, but Carmelo Anthony is a celebrity, right? Right. He has a whole different type of uh, exposure in the world. And what is going on? Sorry about an auto play that's okay. things in the background here. <laughs> so when, when he came and it was just like this media sensation and it was like, like everywhere they would go, there were people, you know, cheering for Caramelo Anthony. And it was just like nothing that we had seen before. And so just like his personality and his attitude and uh, him not coming in and trying to take over and not trying to like usurp Dame or whatever. He just came in and he was a guy that who knew what he was doing mm -hmm. and at that point. Like I was looking back over some of the games. So Portland got mellow. On November 19th, the next day on November 21, because like there'd already been a bunch of injuries, the next game they started at center, Anthony Tolliver, Mello, who was brand new to the team, Rodney Hood was still playing, Dame was out, so they had Gary Trent Jr. playing shooting guard and CJ playing point guard. Like that's where <laughs> the Blazers were at that point. They were starting Anthony Tolliver at center. So... Like the fact that Melo could be on the floor and you didn't have to worry about him. Like he knew what he was doing. Like, you you know, and sure he takes a lot of shots. 
he's mellow. And like at the beginning, people were complaining because he was taking too many shots. It's like he's mellow. That's what he does. He <laughs> takes shots. So anyway, what all I can say about that is I think it's been super fun and I have no like expectations that, you know, he's going to stay or stick around. I would be t- super happy if he did, but I like totally understand if he doesn't. Um, but in terms of just the fact that, like I said, it had gotten dark and he came in and he was just like a little ray of sunshine. I would say that was a success there. I think there's, and I'm wondering if you would agree, there might be something to why it's worked in Portland is that they haven't really tried to change him. And what I think that people didn't really notice when he was in OKC in Houston is that he was taking the kinds of shots for the most part that everyone wanted him to take and they just weren't falling. And he's in Portland now where they give him the, like they haven't tried to to nuke the, the mid range twos out of his, his mid range jumpers mm-hmm. out of his game. Like they encourage him to take those, those pull up shots and they're not asking him to be strictly a catch and shoot guy either. And so I do think, especially for someone who's as old as he has been in the league, as long as he is, that rhythm is this actual thing that maybe you can't always quantify, but they're going to feel more comfortable and be more effective if they can play more like themselves, again, particularly this late in their career. And Portland really seems to have allowed him to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was also clearly going to be a year where some of the young players were going to get playing time. Um, and especially, you know, young players like like Naz Little. Like imagine, you know, he, he was a rookie and he wasn't going to play. But, you know, he's playing alongside or, you know, he's playing on the same team with Carmelo Anthony. And I just I think that helped a little bit with um, with the learning that was also going to be taking place this year. You know, again, he's a vet who knows what he's doing and he also has a lot to share. And one of the things that for years people are always saying, you know, Portland needs to get uh, an experienced vet. Portland needs to get an experienced vet. And like with Damian Lillard, it's not like they needed somebody to help with the leadership. No, obviously. Having somebody who could like help with skill sets, you know, was like another thing. And it turns out that it appears that, you know, he's willing to, you know, be helpful on that front and let these young guys learn alongside him. And plus it's just really fun to watch Melo back down guys. That's just (laughs) like, some people don't like it, but I think it's really fun because it's like somebody, it's like, it's like realizing like, Oh God, I'm in the middle of a movie now. Like (laughs) that's just what Melo does. I I can't remember the game too, but he dunked. Uh, I haven't looked at how many dunks he has this season, but it was the only dunk I saw him have as a member of the Blazers. And it was just like, I sometimes forgot that Melo could really like destroy the rim sometime. He has 15 dunks this year and I've only seen one of them apparently, but he, he is always, as he's gotten older, there's, he's turned those more into layups. The thing that I can't, I've tried to figure out an explanation for this and it just seems inexplicable. Portland's defense is 7.2 points per 100 possessions better when he's on the floor. And I just tried to figure out what was happening. I looked at lineup data. I was like, well, you know, he spent a pretty good amount of time with Ariza and Whiteside and Trent on the floor at the same time. Like maybe that's it. I still just don't have an answer. Do you have one for me? I know this kind of throws you on the spot, but it it is inexplicable to me. That is that there's that big of a defensive net uh, defensive rating swing for him. You know, I'm not sure, but it went the thing, I guess what I would look at, like I would go watch is where is he? Because these guys who've been in the league for so long, like they just seem, they know where they're supposed to be. And they, you know, because of where they are, I think they can be really effective. And so I'd like, I'd, I'd like to see like, was he 
um, was he actively guarding someone? Was he, you they've know, done a cutting good job, people I think, off? Of, they've done a good job, I think, at least putting him on players that maybe don't necessarily need to dribble all the time. So maybe that mm-hmm. helps. I still just don't. Your explanation makes I still just can't. I can't fathom it for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's Portland has a really specific system. And I think it was a, a rough year because that system depended so much on what Yusuf Nurkic did. And instead, it was Hansai and Whiteside doing it. So I guess we can travel. We can transition. And sometimes to part not two. doing it, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. And 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 that's the thing is uh, I think. When Hassan Whiteside was brought onto the team, he was clearly a stopgap for somebody to stand in for Nurkic until Nurkic came back, right? He was, I do not believe that, you know, he was brought in to be the future of Portland. He was brought in because Yusuf Nurkic was injured mm-hmm. and somebody needed to take his spot. Like, um, you know, and Ennis Cantor had some success doing that last year. So, um, be, you know, and Ennis Cantor was never known as a great defender, but he was experienced enough that he figured out what his position was supposed to be in Portland's defense. And I don't think Hassan Whiteside, his uh, type style of play really fits in with Portland's defensive system, especially after they lost Zach Collins. Because Zach Collins was supposed to be like this help defender. And then when Zach Collins wasn't there to help and kind of shore up Hassan Whiteside, then it was just kind of like, you know, a a never ending flow of people trying to come in and like clean up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Hassan Whiteside was at his best when he had a really specific job and it was just a great day for him when that job was to get blocks, but that's not always the job of the center. And so that was hard. Like one of the really important jobs of the center is to set screens. And it took him a long time um, before his screens were anywhere close to as effective as, you know, Yusuf Nurkic. I mean, Yusuf Nurkic's screens like extended like in a 10 foot radius around him. Like, <laughs> he gave so much room for Damian Lillard to operate that, um, you know, it was just a joy to behold. And, you know, Hassan Whiteside wasn't there yet. And on the pick and roll, he was so at the beginning, like, quite tentative in the role, like trying to get the timing right and trying to like Mm. overthink it and all that stuff. So if all he had to do was go out there and get blocks and hopefully grab blocks and not just like push them out, you know, into the (laughs) audience, um, then it was great. Um, but when he had to start taking on a heavier burden because of the lack of Zach Collins and having to, you know, support Damien with the screening it was just, I think it was just more than his skill set was made for, I guess I'll say. <laughs> I would agree with everything that you just said, but I'm also an Hassan Whiteside pessimist. And so I just want to make sure I wasn't too unnecessarily low on him. Well, because it, it is easy to look at the numbers sometimes and even some of the games that he's had and be like, damn, Hassan Whiteside's really good. <laughs> He and he has had some really good games. I want to give him full credit because he has had some games where he was absolutely on. And in those games, he knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing because either somebody's in his ear telling him. And that was kind of a fun thing about getting Trevor Ariza because he was never afraid to tell Hassan Whiteside exactly what Hassan Whiteside should be doing. Um, 
so like he, especially towards the end there, he had some games where not only did he have box score impact, but he had game impact. But a lot of times it was like, I mean, you always need points. Like you can't win if you don't score more points than the other team. Like, (laughs) so that's a, a hard thing to, to kind of, uh, tease out when you see somebody who's scoring a lot of points. Um, but yeah, like he was at his most effective when he could do additional things like create space for other players and create second opportunities for other players, like, you know, clear out the rim so that somebody else could get the rebound. That would be amazing (laughs) when he could do that. (laughs) Didn't happen all that much. Um, Hassan Whiteside along with, Carmelo Anthony is going to be a free agent this summer. Uh, Trevor Reza's contract is also only partially guaranteed. I think it's $1.8 million. I'm assuming Hood is going to pick up his player option. I have no idea what Hazonia is going to do. I'd probably recommend if I were him picking up his player option. Uh, Wenyan Gabriel's a free agent as well. Do you know where these guys sort of, where you think they should fall on the list of priorities for the Blazers? Do you think that Portland's going to end up guaranteeing Ariza salary, which aside, my new favorite tradition is Trevor Ariza signing for a bunch of money with one team over the summer and then getting <laughs> traded to a better one mid season. That's, that's a, my new favorite rite of passage. Um, but, but would you, do you view any of these guys as sort of must keeps for the Blazers when you're, when you're looking at specifically who, who will, or who, who could enter free agency? So I think uh, Trevor Ariza, you know, just the way that uh, Blazers ended up being able to sign Rodney Hood last season, people, I think a lot of people considered that a real win. And um, I think if they were able to get Trevor Ariza, that might be a, a, a really nice thing just because wings are just something that Portland just you know, hasn't always had, um, what score, like, uh, reliably scoring wings, let's say. Um, but I, I keep thinking about the fact that when everybody's healthy, the lineup's going to be Dame and CJ, Rodney Hood, Zach Collins, and Yusuf Nurkic. So when that, when that lineup is healthy, the wonderful thing is, is that there aren't gaps in the starting lineup. So I'm really glad that the Blazers don't have to worry about trying to fill a starting position. That would be super worrisome. So I'm not as freaked out about what happens over this summer because they have, you know, their starters. Um, But I would guess that Ariza, I would guess that Hazonia will probably pick him up. And one of the things like it was a rough year for Mario Hazonia and it seems like it's been a rough several years for Mario Hazonia. A rough career for Mario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but he hasn't had a chance to play on the floor with Nurkic yet. So, like, I don't think I'm going to be mad if, you know, he sticks around. Because I think there's a real potential that, you know, he and Nurkic could have, you know, just whether or not they're actually playing on the floor at the same time. But I mm-hmm. think Yusuf could be kind of a, a nice... Um, I think it could be really encouraging for Mario. One of the things before Yusuf went down was that see, Yusuf, this is totally my theory. So I have no insider knowledge of all of this, but this is just from observation. Aggregators um, alert. <laughs> <laughs> right. No one's going to aggregate anything I say. Cause it's so crazy. They're like, what? Um, but anyway, like from observation, like Damien or Yusuf Nurkic admires Damien Lord so much. And you just watch him. He just seems to just like, really obviously think that Damien is just like awesome. And 
Um, I noticed towards the end of the season that he got injured, Yusuf Nurk is spending a lot of time really encouraging like Maurice Harkless and some of the other players like who maybe would kind of get in a slump or a funk. And it like Yusuf Nurkic would be like the first one out there encouraging him. Just like back in the day when he would be in a little bit of a funk, Damian Lord was the first person out there encouraging him. So I like to think that that is a role that Damian Lillard or that Yusuf Nurkic likes to do is to be that encouraging guy. Like, I mean, we saw it last night when we watched the replay of that Oklahoma city game. Like he was at home at halftime and he got in his car and he drove to the (laughs) arena because he wanted to be there for his guys. So I like, I'm keeping open the possibility that him and Mario together playing together could really lead to a good season for Mario. So I think it'll be fine for Mario if, if he ends up staying and I hope that, Trevor Ariza takes it too. That would be fun to see a whole year of Trevor Ariza or at least a half a year until he gets traded. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you almost the way he's played since coming over from, uh, Oh my God, where is he? Sacramento. Wow. That was forgot that for a minute. I would yeah. guess that they guarantee his contract. That would be my, my guess. Um, and I, I don't think maybe his son white comes back. I don't know what his mark would be. Mello is more interesting to me because I feel like if I were him, I, like you should stay with the Blazers just because you know it works, but they don't have bird rights on you. And I'm just curious whether will there be actually any team like maybe willing to offer him more money. There's not a lot of cap space out there, but could he get the taxpayer mid-level exception from someone? And if you're the Blazers, I don't know that funneling, you know, five to $6 million a year into Camelo Anthony necessarily makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be so interesting to see what happens with you know how much money is lost because of the shutting down of the league and what the situation really is like next year and whether or not they're gonna like try to actually even make any changes to figure out how teams can be built you know there may be teams that can't even build a roster because of if the if the um you know cap goes down so much so i just i don't i don't think that uh i mean because it sounds like mellow totally plans on playing several more years. So maybe he'll look around and go, you know what, with the healthy roster, the Blazers right now are a really good chance for me to actually go a long way in the playoffs. And, you know, maybe for that, he'll take a veterans minimum. But my guess would be that there's going to be somebody out there who's seen him play, who's willing to give him more than that. I think I'm with you there. And so that sort of brings me to my next question, which is, so unless the Blazers pay through the teeth to keep us on Whiteside, which they absolutely, positively, unequivocally should not do, <laughs> um, they should have the full mid-level exception, uh, the biannual too, but the mid-level exception should be their their best weapon. I think that's worth like $9.8 million this year. Again, you already mentioned it, depending on what happens with the cap. Is beefing up the wing rotation still their most pressing priority, or do you think that they might go another direction with that money? Do they try and hedge against what Yusuf Nurkic might look look like when when he comes back or is there anything else that you could see them, them targeting just looking at their, the the needs that this roster specifically still has. You know, every time I think I know what the Blazers need or want, they go in a completely different direction and just get somebody that they courted, you know, five years earlier. (laughs) So usually what I just go do is go, okay, who oh, no, are they trying? Get Chandler Parsons this summer. That's scary. <laughs> I we, believe me, we had we were holding our breath. Um, so I just usually go back at the beginning of the you know free agent period and go, okay, let's see who were the Blazers pursuing four years ago. Um, 
but yeah, I don't, I don't really know. And just not knowing what is going to happen next season, I really don't know who they're going to prioritize. Cause like I said, like they're going to have the roster that they've wanted. Um, you know, they say that they have wanted whenever next season starts and like, you know, already people are, you know, last season, you know, we're talking about like when things, well, when things were going poorly back in like, you know, December or whatever, and people, all the trades, CJ McCollum, um, trade, you know, talk started up, um, you know, Steve DeWald, who's one of the writers for Blazers Edge, made a really good point to me. He was like, they're not going to trade CJ until they see what Dame, CJ, and Nurk in this whole right. team are are fully capable. So I think it's going to be a little thing around the edges. So I think they're going to go find someone who's maybe underperformed somewhere, um, who's, you know, six, nine and has long arms and bring him in and, and see what he can do. And I just, I feel like because there was so much turnover last season to get to the starting lineup that they were aiming for, I don't think that there's going to be anything big and dramatic. Um, do you think that I, I will say though, I think the, the MLE could having the non taxpayers one, assuming that they can stay within that range. It should go pretty far this summer. Just when you look at how many teams don't have cap space this year, mm-hmm. there are like five that project to operate over uh, under the cap as of now. And then there's like two thirds of the league is um, using the non taxpayers mid-level exception. So maybe they can just luck into someone who's, even if he's not, wouldn't you, you wouldn't call him the best fit and I don't a name isn't springing to mind here but maybe just someone who's better than expected for for that type of money or maybe you're able to divvy it up among two players where it normally would have only got you one but I am interested to see what end up even if it's a, a move on the fringes I I do want to see who they add I am wondering though if you think that logic sort of applies to sort of the the hold serve logic applies to when you look at their their younger players because I do think Yes, they need to wait and see what Dame, CJ, and, and, and Nurkic look like together. But I also do feel like there's a little bit of a sense of urgency to win because look at how good Damian Lillard is right now. Just like a consensus top seven, top ten player, whatever he is at the moment. And so could you see them at least exploring or or and not so much as waiting for calls to come to them, but could you see them as active seekers of, of making a move on the trade market where maybe they're using they don't have a ton of salary filler but they do have simons they they do have um zach collins they do have this year's pick they still have nos little could you see them trying to maybe consolidate some of their future assets or youngsters into a player that's more suited or is going to help them uh, do more damage in the western conference next season so let me turn around and ask you a question because I don't have an answer for that. But something that is cropped up a lot over the last six months or so, and again, cropped up last night because Damian Lillard was running the Trailblazers Twitter account during the game. Um, a lot, there's, all, there's been a lot of talk about LaMarcus Aldridge returning to Portland. What do you think about that? I just don't, I don't like the idea. If you're going to still have Nurkic, I wouldn't be crazy about it. Um, but he, I saw that tweet and my heart melted. I'm like, didn't Aldridge want to get away <laughs> from Damian Lillard? How could you want, 
I understand like how fans and you said Nurkic is attached to Damian Lillard. I have zero emotional attachment to the to the Trailblazers, and I would die for Damian Lillard just knowing him, <laughs> like, like what I've heard about him. So the, those stories are just gonna like what he does. Everything he does as a leader, the thing putting Lamarcus Aldridge's name on Twitter, uh, that stuff melts my heart. I don't know where you land on this, but I don't think yeah, it'd be cool for nostalgia. But if you're still gonna have Nurkic there, I do think that Aldridge's best position right now is the five, and that they wouldn't make too much sense together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always think of him as a four because he spent so many years saying that he didn't want to play five. <laughs> and, you know, he's another guy who can do that turnaround from the from the two. And maybe the Blazers are the team that makes the two pointer shot popular again. <laughs> I don't know. I just was thinking like um, like logistically, you know, like a player of his caliber would be somebody somebody that these young players who you were talking about who Blazers tend to really, really try to keep close, you know, that's the kind of move that I could see maybe happening. To respond to your point, I, I feel like it would be interesting. I just, the other thing that kind of kills it for me is he makes so much money. And so I don't know what the package looks like. You probably have to guarantee Trevor Reese's salary and then compile a bunch of others together because in theory, you're not trading Nurkic. Um, for Aldridge, and you're definitely not going to trade uh, CJ or Dame for Aldridge. So maybe that's something when he hits free agency in 2021, they could mm-hmm. look at uh, there, if, unless they want to move like a major money piece, which again, they really don't right, have. Right, they don't have that. Yeah, <laughs> they don't have any. You're probably looking at cheaper end of the spectrum. But uh, if, if Lamarcus Aldridge ends up going back to Portland anytime soon as a free agent in 20 or 21, I call that a major W for Damian Lillard. That's what I end up calling that. Well, it was so funny because when they asked him, like, who are some of the guys that you miss the most? And he, like, instantly listed, like, 12 players. Like, the thing <laughs> the thing about Damien is that he loves all of his teammates so much. Like, he still talks about Earl Watson, right? I mean, he just, oh like, God. I mean, it's like he loves these guys that he played with for just, like, a hot minute. And, um, you know, everybody... And which just makes him such a Portland player because we fall in love with everybody and want everybody to come back, except for Raymond Felton. Oh man, even Jamal Crawford. I I don't. I mean, I think so. I mean, I'm sure that there's people out there who wouldn't want Jamal Crawford to to come back to the team, but there's nothing like the opinions that Portlanders have for Raymond Felton. Right. I I don't know enough about Raymond Felton personally, but Jamal Crawford seems like a genuinely good dude too. So it's probably easier to just write off the struggles during. Yeah, I mean, I'm bummed about that because I think. I think it was just a bad year for him. I mean, it was a bad year for everybody. I think it could have been way more fun. It was like we were coming off of Brandon Roy. It was like, you know, Brandon Roy leaves one day and then the next day we get Raymond or um, the next day we get um, Jamal Crawford. And we're like, well, at least Jamal Crawford's like, you know, from Seattle and he's a friend, of (laughs) you know, a friend of his. So this will be good. And then it wasn't great. And I just feel like it could have been a lot better. And I don't think he like actively wanted to not do well i think it was just a bad year uh the other thing i'll say aldridge matthews lopez nick patoom they're all going to be free agents in 2021 they might as well just get the band back together at that point <laughs> that would be yeah that would be um god they played they played some a game with that team the other day and it was like oh miss them that's a kick in the feels yeah <laughs> yeah 
My, Definitely. My final question for you is, so what's something that's undercovered about the Blazers, their future, or some, just a misconception about um, their team at present? Anything that gets misconstrued or, or undercovered from a, from a national perspective that you could share with us about this team? Well, I think I've talked about it a lot, and that is the fact that the this whole year was we were waiting for Yusuf Nurkic to come back. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the intended li- the lineup, you know, is going to be like next year. So I don't think that the big uh, storyline is going to be, you know, who are the big, who's the big player the Blazers are going to go after. I think um, it's going to be, how are these guys going to play together? Honestly, when you said, I know I've already talked about this before, but I thought you were going to go into the all-star case for Gary Trent Jr. That's what I was going <laughs> Yeah, we don't want, I mean, we don't want that to get out there so much about <laughs> Gary Trent Jr. Because we don't want people to like start preparing for him. We want everybody to get like the Gary Trent Jr. surprise and, you know, just have him be like, oh, oh Gary Trent Jr.'s made the scene. <laughs> Uh, I do agree with you with the point you made about the, the team in general, though. And as I think you can know from my reaction when I was on your podcast with with Danny, the anyone who I didn't know that was an actual thing, but if there's like still a subsection of Blazers Twitter or fans, I think uh, Terry Stotts need to be fired. Or if there's anyone who thinks that this would be the offseason to justify breaking up McCollum Lillard, I just I don't see it being it like in any any capacity. I think that. So much of the discussion about breaking up Damon CJ is just like, it's just like fan fiction. It's like an interesting thought experiment. Like, what would happen if? What could players, you know, get if? And like, part of the reason that CJ, I think, comes up so much in the conversation is because he's the most valuable player that the Blazers would trade. Like, you know what I mean? No one's going to like come up with trade scenarios with trading Damien. Right. Um, so CJ is like the next most valuable player on the team. And it's a really interesting thought experiment to think about what it would be like. I just, I can't buy into the narrative that the two of them can't play together because I've watched the two of them play together for so long. And it's like, you know, it's working and they're close and like, it's, I just, I don't know why you would want to break them up unless you think that trading CJ can lead to the team getting a specific player who's going to be the perfect fit. But right now, CJ is the perfect fit. I mean, like, okay, I'll admit, I watch a lot of Hallmark Channel. <laughs> and, and all these movies, it's so often the guy's right there. And that's what I always think about Damien and CJ. <laughs> CJ's right there. Like, we could spend all this time talking about who would be the perfect player and the perfect fit. But the guy's already right there. So just, like, make the most of that. And what's tough with these guys who are, you know, they're not in the top 15 in the NBA or something, the idea that you can that they're going to be more valuable as a trade asset when you're still trying to win is is pretty flawed because what are you going to get back um, by moving CJ McCollum alone? You're going to have to include other assets in there if you want to make an upgrade. And then how much of an upgrade is it actually if you have one of the 30, 35 best players in the NBA, whatever he is, as your second best player? Uh, it, it's easier to go through this. I, I used to be more willing to entertain CJ McCollum trades just before I looked at it from that perspective. And the other thing that maybe goes underrealized he is a murderer in the playoffs. He just seems mm-hmm. like one of those with the way he can get his shots. He's one of those players that just might be way more valuable 
in the playoffs than he actually is during the regular season. And that says a lot because he's a fringe all-star candidate during the regular season. And so watching him in some of his playoff games over the past couple of years, there's just clearly more of an incentive to have him on your roster when it matters most. And that must factor into the equation if you are looking at moving him. And so what you're going to get back for CJ McCollum, yes, if you're rebuilding, maybe it makes some sense. But you're trying to win now. The odds of you using CJ McCollum as the centerpiece to get someone who is noticeably better, um, either in a vacuum or, or as a fit for Portland, the, the odds are just so low on that in my book. Yeah, and you know what? That's a really interesting point you bring up about, yeah, CJ in the – in in the playoffs. And another thing that happened this year is Dame Dame missed I think 8 games total and he had a like a 6 game uh streak that he missed and CJ we all, you know, held our breath to see what would happen with CJ and they did not have a winning winning record during that time, but I thought CJ did a really good job with the pieces that he had at that point. Mm-hmm. Um and I would like to see CJ handle like be the point guard more. You know, like I said, he gets slotted in to like, you know, run the second unit sometimes and he can take, you know, a couple plays, you know, when Dame and CJ are in there together. But um, I think he can do more. And I, I think he hasn't to this point. And I guess at this point, like why, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I do think that he has some more capabilities as like a tr- an actual point guard, not just, a, you know, the second guy or the guy who's leading the, the secondary unit. Like let Dame run and let Dame shoot from, you know, come up with some crazy uh some crazy plays that where you're kicking it back to Dame 35 feet away. That's a half court line. Who cares? He'll hit him. <laughs> if he's open, they'll go down. Exactly. But also like, you know, um, save him a little bit. Let him get a little bit of rest. I mean, CJ, that's the other thing about CJ. He's for the last several years, he's led the league in like miles. I mean, the guy is an incredible shape and has incredible stamina. Like how many times, like, how many times does he run from one corner of the three point line all the way across the arc to the other corner and then turn around and go? I mean, that guy like racks up miles and he has incredible stamina. So, and he, might, and he has to be really one of the smoothest healthy. players in the league. Just like when you watch his game, it's just like, mm-hmm. it's so smooth, so fluid. Yeah, he's right there. The, the the right man is right there. So that was a great I way say- to put it. I did not anticipate <laughs> you drawing parallels between CJ McCombs' partnership with Damian Lillard and the Hallmark Channel, but you did it, and it made sense. <laughs> so so hats off to you. Leave on a high note. <laughs> Tara, thank you so much for doing this. I enjoy talking with you, as always. Uh, I am sure I'll be pestering you again in the future. For anyone who is not following Tara on Twitter, please remedy that immediately. She can be followed at TC. B-B-I-G-G-S. That's at T-C-B-B-I-G-G-S. Thanks again so much, Tara. And until next time, I think it's only appropriate we leave everybody with a shout-out to Gary Trent Jr. Yeah, right on. Thank you so much. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.